1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in New York City, joining us from Washington, D.C., and its environs. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School, who is in Alexandria, Virginia right now, I think. Uh, And uh, in uh, Washington, DC downtown, I, I think we have Sharon Weinberger, who is the Washington Bureau Chief of Yahoo News. And we also have with us Daphna Rand, who is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the U.S. Department of State. Where are you right now,
0: Daphne? I'm here in downtown Washington, D.C. Happy Veterans
1: oh. Day. Happy Veterans Day to everybody. Um, uh, and we're all celebrating it um, more actively than our president, apparently. Um, in any event, I, I want to turn the subject to a topic that we have talked about on, on Deep State Radio periodically, but we've never really devoted a whole episode to. And it, was, it, it struck me as we went through a number of episodes talking about the Khashoggi situation. That um, while everybody was rightfully outraged by what the Saudis had done uh, to Khashoggi, and literally with every passing day, even though they they just want to play it out, it gets more disgusting. Whether it's the way the the the, the, the Crown Prince sort of shrugs it off uh, or tries to cover his tail, or whether it's whether the U.S. government uh, is is participating in the cover-up or whether it's just the details we learn. It's pretty awful. Um, but as awful as it is, uh, there's just one of him. And, you know, at the same time in Yemen, there has been a war going on that has produced what is undoubtedly the world's greatest humanitarian catastrophe. And again, it's involved a collaboration between the United States, the Saudis, the UAE, and a number of other close US allies. Um, and whatever you may think of the merits, uh, the reality is that, you know, current estimates suggest something approaching 60,000 people have died in this war. Um, it may be actually as high as 80,000. Um, uh, perhaps another 50,000 civilians have died of hunger. Uh, again, these are just the estimates that are coming from human rights organizations. Uh, and hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's been something that has essentially stayed under the radar by the design of all the people who are involved with it uh, until quite recently. And I think uh, one of the, you know, potential silver linings of what happened uh, to Jamal Khashoggi is it re established reasons for the U.S. to put pressure on. Uh, the Saudis, and in the past few days, some stories have run in which it has been said that the United States is going to help a little less. And uh, while the U.S. has played it up, uh, the kind of help they're withholding, which has to do with refueling um, uh, 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 aircraft of of allied countries in in their missions over Yemen, uh, is actually relatively small, and as we'll see in a minute, and Sharon has reported with her team, um, the U.S. continues to collaborate in, in a lot of ways. Um, now, Daphne, you were in the Obama administration, and, and one of the things that's also happened recently is that a number of people, 30 people from the Obama administration, uh, released a, a statement. And I thought the statement was noteworthy in a couple of, of, of points. One, um, because of its you know opposition to the Trump administration policies there, but also because uh, there was a there was an element of 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 acknowledgement of culpability there that the Obama administration had supported the early efforts in this war and that they had gotten out of hand that it had been a mistake um and 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 I'm wondering as you as somebody who's been observing this closely watching it closely um what do you think about that and what do you think about the current state of play on the ground?
0: Sure. Well, thanks. It's a lot of questions. There's a lot going on on the ground. Maybe I'll start with answering what's happening on the ground because You know, 10 days ago, 12 days ago, on October 30th, the U.S. Secretary of Defense and U.S. Secretary of State, in a remarkable joint statement, called for a cessation of hostilities in Yemen in a very clear way and basically said, you know, the the war has to end and we're going to meet at the end of November with the U.N. special envoy. The parties need to stop the fighting. And really, this is it. And it was a pretty strong statement. Secretary Mattis, in particular, hadn't gone so far as really to call for all parties to stop the fighting um, in his tenure. So, but what happened in the past 10 days, there's actually been an escalation of the coalition air raids in Yemen, and that's just been a remarkable thing. Um, and it's unclear if the announcement from the United States that there were going to be sort of a new set of pressures for negotiations led to this escalation, or this is an effort by the coalition led by the Saudis and driven in part by uh, Emirati ground forces, which are amassing on the, on the West Coast, on the Red Sea whatever the 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 strategy here, you know the past ten days have been incredibly deadly. So, you know, the number of air raids and the number 22 that have hit one residential district in the first nine days of November is more than the whole month of October, just to give you an example. And this is the area, just to remind the listeners, al-Hudaydah governorate, where it's very dense, lots of population, but it's the area through which all the humanitarian materials and the aid flows through the rest of the country. So the big port there in Hudaida is very key because 75% of all the fuel and food and medicine comes in through ships. But it's not just the port. It's the governorate itself that has the roads that transports the goods to the rest of the country. So essentially, this is incredibly, this is an escalation of funding on one hand, but it's a very precarious situation for the people of Yemen. So just to quickly touch on, you know, what happened, the letter... You know, look. The decision for the U.S. to support the coalition, and I stress, the U.S. was never in the coalition, but decided in 2015 to offer material security support to the coalition led by Saudi Arabia, with including many other U.S. partners, was always considered to be conditional under the Obama administration. You know, we we thought of it as conditional, and in fact, began taking away some of the elements of support through 2015 and 2016, and then in a last ditch effort to show the conditionality of the support and. December 2016, we actually decided to help, to, to hold one of the. Key pieces of munitions that was going to the Saudis um, in December 2016. But then, when the Trump administration came in, it was clear that the policy of conditional support for the coalition had been eschewed in favor of all-out embrace of, of the war and support for one side. Um, and it's that support and that you know that clearly has led to to the continued stalemate, uh, the continued humanitarian tragedy. So the events of the past couple of weeks are really interesting because what we're looking at is whether U.S. leverage can work and pushing its side of the civil war, you know, its partners to actually stop the fighting and get back to the negotiating table?
1: Well, I think one of the questions is, is fighting escalating because they feel like they're going to have to draw this to a conclusion soon because there's going to be increasing pressure on the U.S. to stop all forms of support as the Democrats take over the House. There won't be funding for some of those forms of support and so forth. Uh, and because there's also increasing um, opposition, even on the Republican side, to uh, working collaborating with the Saudi government, given what's happened recently, or is this just an acceleration of of, of a situation that's that doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon? Sharon, you guys had a story not too long ago, uh, and I mean by not too long ago, I mean yesterday or today, that uh, was talking about how the US has been, whether they're part of the coalition or not, collaborating very closely with the coalition. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So there was some
2: late breaking news on Friday, originally broken by the Washington Post, reporting that there were there was a plan within the Pentagon to stop the refueling of, of the Saudi-led coalition's aircraft um, operating over Yemen. And at first, DOD refused to confirm it. And then around 11.16 p.m., Um, the DOD, Secretary Mattis, issued a statement saying by mutual agreement um, they were going to stop refueling coalition aircraft. In the meantime, the story that we wrote over the weekend is that there is this fundamental conflict because there's unclassified support, which is still not that transparent that we provide to the coalition, like refueling, um, like some forms of intelligence. And then there is less talked about a covert operation, which is what we reported on Um, called Operation Yukon Journey, that um, the the DOD inspector general actually criticized in a recent report that DOD sort of announced there were these new classified um, overseas contingency operations, but wouldn't even say precisely where they are. Well, we found out that Yukon Journey is in fact for Yemen. In the big sense, this is not surprising. It was known for a while that there probably been that there have been special forces raids, but th- there have also been special forces operating on the ground in Yemen. But one of the concerns is as Congress has um, has introduced some different resolutions, some different bills, trying to scale back or stop U.S. support. They don't even have necessarily the full picture of what classified support the U.S. is giving. So yes, it's Fine. Um, it's certainly a positive development when the Pentagon says we're going to stop refueling aircraft to try to put pressure on the Saudi-led coalition. But the other question is, um, what are the classified operations doing? And in the bigger sense, what is the strategy here? I think that's been the ongoing question for the
1: past three years. Well, I think Rosa. Beyond the question of what is the strategy, you got to ask the question: What is the objective? What you know? What? what how does this? involvement in this serve the United States of America.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I I it never made a whole lot of sense to me. And i I defer to Daphne and Sharon if they think it made sense at at some point. Um, uh, but but at this point, I think the, you know, the the theme here is that it's it's completely out of control. You know, that whatever original objective, which 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 was linked to a combination, as I understand, of counterterrorism imperatives. Or perceived counterterrorism imperatives uh, and as a desire to play nice with the Saudis, uh, also in part because of counterterrorism concerns. Uh, whatever objectives were originally being served uh, are clearly no longer being served. it's it's you know, it, it's not unlike the situation in Syria. It's a situation where whatever logic, whatever logic applied to early decisions, just it doesn't make any sense anymore, and yet our policies have have not really adapted.
1: Well, I think that's a question, but but let's 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 drill down a little bit further on it. Daphne, can you think of any either legitimate objective the United States still has for being involved, or B, legitimate objective that anybody has for still being involved in this? What is essentially right now? a humanitarian catastrophe without a seemingly, uh, you know, viable political solution in sight.
0: No, you know, currently there's really no strategic objective that's in the U.S. interest. And the truth is, is that Three years ago, in the context of, you know, the president and the Obama White House trying to negotiate the JCPOA, that was the nuclear deal, there was some concern that the Saudis were, you know, needed to be reassured. And that was one of the arguments that that led some within the Obama administration to advocate to supporting this coalition, to reassure the Saudis that the United States was not, you know, betraying them or was willing to fight the Houthis because the Houthis are, you know, were considered an Iranian, an Iranian proxy although Iran's involvement, it's important to note, has only increased since 2015. So it's been sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. But I would just, you know, to Rose's point about counterterrorism, the interesting thing here is that, you know, you can call counterterrorism as the Saudis call it, which is anti-Houthi, but the, the real counterterrorism threat to the United States, to the U.S. homeland, is AQAP. And AQAP was almost, you know, eviscerated from southern Yemen. But since the civil conflict, so you have basically one conflict over another conflict, once the civil war between the Houthis and the coalition escalated and continued. It has created a failed state in the South that has enabled the return of AQAP and and like-minded Al-Qaeda affiliates. So in fact, there was no U.S. counterterrorism objective in the first instance, and the perpetuation of the war has only made the the more important U.S. counterterrorism threat more pronounced in Yemen. So that's been one of the deep ironies and sort of tragedies of this war, not to mention the association of the United States with the coalition from the perspective of the people in the And what I worry about is, you know, the Pentagon can decide not to refuel, but the damage in some sense has already been done because the people of Yemen consider the U.S. and the U.K. who are supporting the coalition akin to coalition forces.
1: Well, I mean, I think a legitimate question is, how are they not coalition forces? I mean, if you're providing the weapons and you're providing logistical support and you're providing intelligence support um, and you have been ongoing providing training support, uh, you know, uh, and and frankly, there have also been reports that there have been U.S. special forces on the border of Yemen, assisting and advising the the Saudis. Um, that sounds like they're part of the coalition to me.
2: Uh, if I could uh, butt in there for a second, David, I think you're absolutely right. And to to go back to what Daphna was saying originally about the Obama administration, you know, those of us who have followed the events in Yemen um, for the past number of years have been very frustrated by the lack of attention it gets. I mean, our sort of almost sick joke is that, you know, nobody reads Yemen stories. Um, but, you know, even from the earliest days of the Saudi-led airstrikes, it was very, it wasn't like there wasn't a realization this wasn't going well. Um, there were civilian areas that were suffering from the airstrikes from the first days. Um, and so it, it it's not, I think that the Obama administration shares a, I mean, a large amount of responsibility for what happened. It's certainly good now that former officials from that administration are going back and being critical. But this is not a Trump versus Obama administration issue. It is what is clearly a pretty disastrous policy from a humanitarian perspective and, as you mentioned, a political perspective that, that doesn't see an easy resolution right now.
1: Uh, no, no, it, it it doesn't. And you know, I I, I just let me stick with you for a second, Sharon, before I go to to Rosa. But you know, you talk about why stories like this don't get attention, and, and you know, yet there have been in the past, you know, uh, several weeks a number of stories of children who have suffered in the, in, the, in 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 in. in Inconceivably, in this conflict, uh, you guys had one I was, of, a, of a child who was a, a you know, visible victim of this thing, who effectively, as I read your story, got, got kidnapped off to Saudi Arabia?
2: We are still waiting for comment as of today from the Saudi embassy. Um, they said it's forthcoming, yes, um, almost a week later. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I misquoting the old, you know, sort of adage, what is it, you know, one death is a tragedy, you know, a million is a statistic. Um, I, I think what Khashoggi did in a very personal way, I mean, part of it was the way details were linked of how horrific it was. You know, I think um, nothing goes further in spreading a story than the words bone saw. Um, it is very hard in this very frenetic news cycle to get people to pay attention. I mean, it sounds awful to say to get people to pay attention to famine. Um, you know, we wrote about this young girl, a five-year-old girl, who at one point was a very visible face of the war in Yemen, um, uh, Butina. Butina, who had her entire family was killed in a Saudi airstrike that they said was a technical mistake. It killed her siblings, uncle, and her parents. And she became a symbol of the war um, based in Sana'a. The family now claims that uh, she was lured with with part of her family with an uncle to Aden. And from there, airlifted against the family's will to Riyadh. Um, It is certainly clear, based on multiple interviews from family members, Uh, that the family uh, that is with her is being held against their will, that they wish to return to Yemen. It's clear that one uncle has been put in prison in Saudi Arabia, and the Saudi government has so far not said why. Um, They have made public videos on Facebook saying they wish to return to Yemen. Um, but even that, you know, it's very hard. You know, kidnapping a five-year-old girl whose entire family was killed in an airstrike, it's still hard to um, to get people to pay attention. I wish I had a better explanation for why.
1: Well, it seems to be, a, Rosa, a problem that, that, you know, afflicts the entire region. I mean, Syria is still torn apart by chaos and war, um, but it doesn't get any coverage to speak of here. Um, and. You know their flare ups every so often in in Gaza doesn't get, uh, get you know gets coverage for a few days more coverage than these other things do but it, but it but it, but it fades. Um and I you know is is part of this just exhaustion on the part of the u s is part of it you know ongoing disinterest in in what's going on in the rest of the world or or you know, is there David, something I, else, I else at foot?
3: <clears throat> and so apologies, i I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm doing a lot of throat clearing. Um, but I, I think it's it's more pernicious than that. It's it's uh, the the Trump show. Um, I mean, I mean, there it's always difficult to get Americans and and the media to focus and stay focused on bad things happening far away. But I think that the the sort of standard difficulty has has been tripled or quadrupled because of the fact that we now spent all of our time in this country reacting to whatever most recent uh, crazy thing our president has done. And that's really sucked all the oxygen out of almost every other story. You know, it is stories both domestic and international that that would, you know, two or three years ago have gotten days of headlines now are you know one day phenomenons, and then Trump tweets something else or does something does something else that's outrageous or wacky and and that takes over the news cycle again. So I think we I, I think that that, more than anything else, is what has been pushing pushing these various tragedies uh, and calamities and uh, criminally negligent errors out of the press. and And speaking of uh, criminal negligence, um I wanted to add one additional reason to that that Americans should be concerned about what's going on in Yemen, uh, in addition to the question of whether this is any strategic value uh, or whether it's serving any any u s. objective that makes any sense. Uh, it's also exposing u s. Uh, officials to significant potential international legal liability because as a legal matter, Uh, We are, you know, whatever we may say about whether we're part of this war as a a sort of public relations matter, as a legal matter, we we clearly qualify as as co-belligerents under international law and are liable for any uh, actions undertaken by our coalition partners and those we're supporting uh, that violates international uh, humanitarian law, and and there have been numerous incidents that uh, are are being investigated, uh, and we don't know how this is going to come out. But but it's you know it's a really bad idea to give help and support to militaries that are not going to be t- all that careful. And under President Obama, uh, I think it's fair to say that. At least there was some degree of concern about that, and a good deal of concern on the part of Pentagon officials and White House officials about ensuring that those we were aiding were in full compliance with the law of armed conflict. Uh, under President Trump, I think that the White House has uh, completely lost interest in that issue. I think at the Pentagon uh, there's still concern about it, but but you know it doesn't appear to have made a substantial difference in the in the outcome of hostilities.
0: And I should add, I completely agree, Rosa, that you know, back, David, to your point about the bipartisan nature of the concerns with the war and U.S. involvement in it. Congress has had a has had an eye on this, and they've been and many a few members of Congress, including Ted Lieu, who's a former you know Navy JAG, has been asking these questions since the beginning. That Rosa, you're alluding to what is the U.S. culpability under international law? And I would say that one bright spot here, if there's any bright spot, is the fact that there's been bipartisan. Um, cooperation on some of the Yemen-related legislative activity. And there has been a fair amount, despite the, you know, distraction during the Trump era, despite the issues such as North Korea and Russia that seem to, you know, second of the air in the foreign policy debate or kind of, you know, demand attention. But there has been a great deal of concern about Yemen. In fact, there have been roll call votes on individual items, FMS, foreign military sales have, you know, usually they just go through and it's kind of just a stamp of approval. But in the past couple of years, there have been at least two roll call votes then narrowly were defeated, you know, rejecting the notion that certain arms should be sold. Um, so Congress has exercised some of its oversight capacity. Just last, just earlier this year in the National Defense Authorization Act, there was language calling on the State Department to certify uh, various things about how the coalition was operating, conducting the war. Um, and now what one of the reasons probably that um, Secretary Mattis over the weekend and there was, you know, this decision about the refueling is that momentum has been building for a number of weeks to put forward a War Powers Resolution, HCON Res. 138 which is co-sponsored um, by both Republicans and Democrats that basically says it's a vote on whether the U.S. should be supporting the war. It might be a little bit more symbolic than material, but there but there was near certainty that it was gonna come up for a vote this week or after Thanksgiving in the lame duck. And it still might. The, the authors have issued a press release this weekend that they're still gonna go forward with this resolution, which basically says, you know, the 2001 authorization of the use of force only covers uh, Military activities against Al Qaeda and associated forces. So that would be that CT or counterterrorism fight, but has no authority to uh, engage in the civil, in the civil war. So to support the coalition. So we'll see if that resolution still comes up for a vote.
1: Well, I guess one of the questions that we've got to start asking ourselves is what happens next? You know, there, the, you know, supposedly an effort to go and 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 move towards some kind of political settlement here. But at the same time, uh, a Trump administration that's backed into a corner seems very likely to ramp up tensions with uh, Iran further. That's a, a, an area uh, of, of, of real concern. And, and for example, um, John Bolton is in the UAE today, I think, as we're recording this. Uh, and we know what John Bolton feels like, uh, feels about um You know, Iran. Um, I I, I guess the the question becomes is this likely to get wrapped up because of this pressure, or is it likely to get worse because this is the flashpoint that the Trump administration can pursue um, most easily, and where, you know, Pompeo and Bolton and Trump, who are not aligned on everything, are aligned on this? Do you have any thoughts on that, Sharon?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on what is the most unfortunate part of this, um, which is certainly there's increasing pressure to cease U.S. military support for the coalition. And then there's the resolution coming out of Congress. There could be further congressional action. But and again, this is the, the Yemen war is one of those issues. One of the reasons I feel it's ignored is, you know, it's not something you can pin solely. It doesn't fall into the Trump narrative. It's not immigration. It's not a Trump policy. It's a continuous of a flawed policy from a previous administration. Nonetheless, the administration now owns it. Um, But even if we cease our support, I don't think this administration, precisely because of what you described, because of Bolton and their wishing to put pressure on Iran, I don't see them having the creativity to to put pressure on having a negotiated settlement, I certainly see us scaling back support, but that's different than a new policy saying that all sides need to come to the negotiating table. I, I unfortunately don't see that coming from this administration.
1: You know, Rosen, one of the things that strikes me as, as as we listen to this discussion and think about this is that part of this is 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 a, is a consequence of the United States trying to figure out. How not to be involved in the Middle East while still being involved in the Middle East, and so you know the the kind of forward leaning approach of of say the Bush administration um, fell out of favor, and um, being uninvolved altogether is is a problem because we have interest there, and so what you do is you get into these kind of issues where you say, well. Let's let the regional actors do it, and we'll just provide them with some support. But as you said earlier, they may not be operating to the same kind of uh, standards or with the same kind of objectives we have. And so there's a, there's a broader issue here, quite apart from Yemen, which is the U.S. is without a, a strategy or modus operandi in the Middle East at large.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's quite fair. Uh, The only thing I would disagree with you on, David, is is that uh, I'm not sure that this administration is, is in fact, uh, all that interested in in getting out of Middle East entanglements. Uh, The the statement uh, coming from the Pentagon, the White House just a few weeks ago, the effect that we're going to stay in Syria until we completely eliminate the Iranian presence, for instance, sure sounded like a, a commitment to staying, uh, if necessary, more or less forever. Uh, and and that's obviously has the direct involvement of, of U.S. troops on the ground as well as uh, U.S. efforts to support partner forces. Um, so so, it, it, I, I, I but but I think your fundamental point is absolutely right that we we don't have a clear regional strategy. I I think I think whatever negative things one might say about, about Bush and about Obama, and there are many negative things that could be fairly said about each, uh, that they each had some vision of what it was they were trying to do in the region. And, and as you said, in Bush's case, it was a, a very interventionist, neoconservative, uh, we're going to reshape the region, uh, you know, turn everything into a democracy, uh, etc., Uh, And we'll stay as long as we have to, you know, no, no cost is too great, et cetera, to get it done. Um, Then under Obama, there was a a clear, at least effort to say, this doesn't make sense. We need to get out of here. We need to be turning our attention primarily to uh, the Asian Pacific region. And even though it may take us a while to completely disentangle, our goal is to disentangle and to rely solely on efforts of partners. whereas in in under the Trump administration, I don't have I don't I, I certainly have no sense of any overarching vision of what are what are we doing? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to stay? Are we trying to leave? We're trying to stay some places and leave other places? Or are we just, you know, Pulling random policy objectives out of a hat, you know, every few weeks and going with that for the next couple of weeks. That is,
1: frankly, often what it what it seems like. Um, Definitely prognosticate. Um, But, you know, I mean, you can prognosticate about what's going to happen with peace talks. But I'm really more interested in what's going to happen to the people of Yemen.
0: Yeah, I'm actually pessimistic on both fronts, but maybe even more pessimistic about the people of Yemen, um, who, you know, the country is completely destroyed in some way, in many ways. The South has, the services are not running. um, And there's really two, at least two, if not three or four different governing structures. So the first question is, is it possible to stitch back the, the country back together again? And I think that's Martin Griffiths, the UN Special Envoy's first task is to consider how the negotiations fit into a unified Yemen. The second question is what to do about the regional, the, the neighbors. So we've talked a lot about Saudi-led coalition, Saudi Arabia, and they've been the most active from the air. But on the ground, the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, have deployed thousands and thousands of troops and really have a mini coalition within a coalition with their own war aims. And their war aims are increasingly diverging from other members of the coalition. So whereas the Saudis really want to protect the... Their border and their territory from Houthi missiles that have been, you know, have been uh, threatening them. The UAE might have a you know a more long-term strategy, an economic strategy of seizing, continuing to hold its sort of their their hard-won, renzi port. So that is. That is the chief concern for both the people and for the negotiators: how to, you know, provide humanitarian aid, begin reconstruction where possible, um, if there's a ceasefire, in a way that takes into account the multiple and overlapping governing structures, including, of course, the Houthis, who you know rule with an iron fist over their areas, including Sanaa, currently the capital.
1: Well, you've also got how many? How many dislocated people in Yemen right now?
0: Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, it's around 40, 45% of their IDPs. But the bigger statistic that matters is this 14 million number, which is what the UN is estimating the number of individuals in Yemen who are nearing famine conditions. So with a population of 28 million, you know, 14 million are on the verge of famine. That's a really serious situation. And it's, it sort of defies UN and other humanitarian operators ability to, to, to uh, manage it. Um, You know, and then you're dealing with things like cholera because some of the water treatment plants have been hit as targeted from from air sorties in the campaign. And, you know, it just takes a long time to rebuild the water system in a way that will prevent uh, the cholera or diminish the cholera spread. Sharon, how,
1: how, how do you how does one get the American press to care about this enough to get the American people to care about it?
2: Uh, that's the question I've been asking myself for over three years. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I have, I have been now at three different publications commissioning and editing stories on Yemen. Um, and this is not; these are reporters who, who want to do their reporting and, and find a hard time placing them. You know, sadly, but also, I mean, you know, what I tell reporters when they pitch Yemen stories is, if nobody reads it, you you haven't done any good to anyone. And so what I, as an editor, encourage reporters to do is is to find angles, of course, accurate angles that capture the attention of the reading public. And that does tend to be, you know, right now, Trump administration. So whether it was the first commando raid in Yemen of the Trump administration um, or things that, that go into other themes. Back when I was at Foreign Policy, I commissioned a story um, from a journalist on the ground who, wrote about the UAE actually using a a Chinese armed drone to take out a moderate Houthi leader, which also kind of brought in all of these themes, the way that the U.S., uh, you know, the U.S. can cut off weapon sales. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons the UAE had bought a Chinese armed drone was because the U.S. hadn't allowed for a long time the export of our armed drones. But, you know, you can cut off armed sales, but then another country can come in and fill the void. It's a really complicated problem. But that's what I continue to push reporters to do to show why the Yemen conflict matters, not just as a humanitarian disaster, which is certainly one of should be the biggest reason, but also because of what it shows for where regional politics, international politics are going.
1: It's hard. Yeah. Well, on on that point, just to go back to your earlier point, Rosa, do you think people in the United States government are liable for prosecution for war crimes? Are allies liable for prosecution for war crimes? Is this a potential flashpoint and angle in this story?
3: I no question about it. It's a potential angle. whether I, I mean, I would distinguish between the the legal principle uh, which is very clear and the, the specific facts of any given incident which which obviously are less clear and and require some investigations. but but as a, as a legal matter, you know, we're co-belligerents. If we provide fuel, intelligence support and so on uh, for the Saudis or or for other coalition partners in Yemen or or any other armed conflict, um, uh, and they go ahead and do something that that violates international humanitarian law, uh, we are potentially, we we meaning the United States of America and, and specifically, Uh, Whatever whatever officials were directly involved um, are potentially liable for criminally liable as well as potentially civilly liable uh, for certain things, Um, whether a particular incident counts as a war crime is a is a is a more complicated matter. Um, And, you know, there's a reason that prosecutions, both investigations and prosecutions for war crimes often drag on for years because they're they're incredibly fact fact specific. And I, you know, to, to be fair, it, it's important to say that the fact that civilians get killed does not mean a war crime has been committed. Uh, you know, civilians can be killed by parties who are complying in good faith with with all legal requirements. Um, sometimes really bad things happen, sometimes accidents happen that aren't due to negligence or fault uh, and much less criminal activity. Um, so so on the one hand, you know, it, no, it's not possible to say with any certainty, given the sort of armchair armchair knowledge that I have, that there have been war crimes and that the United States or u s. officials would be criminally liable. Uh, on the other hand, it's certainly possible to say that there are there have been incidents that at a minimum merit investigation, some of which are already being investigated, uh, and that if it is determined by investigators that not just a tragic accident, but a but a, a criminal activity has occurred, then, yeah, there's potential individual criminal liability for U.S. actors.
1: Okay, I just We just have four or five minutes left. I would just like a couple more questions. Um, Daphna, you talk about the 14 million people who are in Yemen on the verge of famine. Drill down. What is the verge of famine? How close are they to famine? How many I mean, I've read that perhaps fifty thousand people have died of famine so far, but 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 how bad can it get? how quickly?
0: Right. You know, one of the interesting parts of this famine is that it's an economic issue rather than a sort of deficit of food. We think about famine as sort of the crops don't grow, right? But here there is food getting into the country, but because of the inflation and because all of the ports have been squeezed, it is exorbitantly expensive. So there's food to be bought. There's even some medicine to get in the black market, but no one could afford it. So that's one problem. Um, You know, as I said, a lot of this access comes through the Red Sea ports and that's being squeezed. In fact, the coalition. Even blockaded the ports last year, a year ago, for a number of months, and then Sanaa Airport is being closed and shut down um, by the coalition, so that squeezed the country. So for in- the individuals, it's the combination of you know the inability to address treatable diseases because there's no medicine, uh, there's no fuel because the fuel comes in through um, transport vehicles that can't they can't actually move around the country because of the fighting is so bad, and because the belligerents to the to the, the actors you know the, to the conflict are not allowing some of the vehicles to move so there's no generators there's no ability to run hospitals the nurses doctors teachers are all not at work because they the central bank and it's sort of um, public sector has shut down no one's paying the salaries of a in a in a society where you know a, a great percentage of people were employed by the government um so there's just no money for anyone to buy anything and that's you know the significant economic issues that are driving the the, the famine conditions well Sharon just
1: Explore one other possibility: the Congress of the United States. Now that Democrats control the House, they may cut off funding for these kind of activities. I think that there has been a miscalculation on the part of a number of actors in the Gulf, notably the Saudis, but also the Emiratis, and you know the Bahrainis and a bunch of, and, a, and a bunch of the others, maybe the Egyptians as well. Which essentially goes like: Trump will let us do anything let's take advantage of this period while Trump is here. There will be no repercussions for it. Um, But it looks like the worm is beginning to turn. And the question becomes, what happens if the US starts cutting off this funding? How damaged could these relationships get, do you think?
2: Well, when you say cutting off funding, I mean, you're talking about, so I mean, there's, as we said earlier, there's different forms of support. Um, there's the actual arms sales, which I actually think is the least likely to be cut off, um, both because there's a lot of money at stake for the United States. Trump has been pretty clear that he values us production. Um, so I, I find that the least likely, but beyond that, there's the refueling. So that's already been stopped. Um, there's the intelligence sharing and logistics. Support that has apparently not been cut off, but would be by some of this, um, some of what's going on in Congress if that comes to a vote. Um, And then there's the covert support. I'm not clear yet how that would be supported by the congressional resolution, by the War Powers Resolution. Presumably, that would be affected. but the, I think the question is, and I, I don't know the answer, perhaps Daphne or Rosa do, if we cut off all forms of support, and, and let's say even we cut off arms sales and we hold that over, does that actually stop um, the the coalition, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and the rest of the coalition from conducting the military intervention in Yemen, either because it pressures them to do so or it so hobbles their capability? I, I don't know what the answer to that is, unfortunately. Do
1: you have any thoughts on that, Rosa?
3: no I, I i don't entirely sorry
1: well yeah. let me go on go on Daphne.
0: yeah i mean i would just say that this is the you know 100 million dollar question when you have this kind of support which is you know that on some level the saudi and emirati military infrastructure was built and created by partnership capacity building over decades right so um so on one hand, to sort of ground the Air Force, the Saudi Royal Air Force, to stop the sorties, you know, is possible if that's the goal, because, you know, all levels of U.S. support could be withdrawn, whether it's the training that goes on or all sales. So I do think it's possible. Um, but the bigger question that's being asked in this part of the conversation is the leverage. And this is what bothers me the most, right? In the beginning, there was a condition agreement to conditionally support the co- the coalition and the U.S. impermature and reputation was given and offered to this. But now, three years, later, it seems like, you know, the U.S. has sullied its reputation, has had all the downsides and negatives, including the ethical and legal downsides that we've discussed, but doesn't have doesn't seem to have accrued enough leverage to turn off the war or determine the strategic end of it or influence the players to, you know, to push toward political negotiations um, or to say, look, an escalation in Hodeidah will not achieve anything at the at the negotiating table at the end of the month. So that is the most dangerous part of this in my mind, is that the, the offer of support, conditional, unconditional, uncon- whether refueling or not refueling, didn't seem to buy uh, ability to, to pressure, persuade or influence.
1: You know, So Rosa, just I just wanna wrap by putting this into some perspective. The Trump administration is really pretty terrible at foreign policy. In fact, I really can't think of many areas where it's going well, whether it's, you know, trade wars with China or trade wars with our allies or alienating our allies on trips to Europe or going along with our enemies or whatever. But of all the things that they're doing wrong that have immediate human consequences, going along with this war in Yemen may be the worst. And I'm just wondering what your your take is on that.
3: Um, I don't know. I think Syria gives it some uh, a run for its money, uh, and obviously the both 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 in terms of Yemen and Syria, the the Trump administration. Can't be held responsible for starting these um, but but in terms of the uh, chaos and human misery uh, I would be I would be reluctant to you know declare one or the other place the the winner of the most horrifically tragic and awful uh, and morally disgusting situation for the Trump administration it's it's a pretty tough call there's a lot of competition
1: you'll, you'll admit it's in contention
3: oh yeah no i mean i you know the i the only the only thing that makes me hesitate is just that whenever we start saying oh this is the worst disaster this is the worst disaster um you know they're both pretty bad they're both pretty awful disasters i'm, I'm not sure we have any ability to decide which is which is the worst they're both so horrific
1: well and I'm, I'm not just doing it to be uh, cavalier and you know or superficial the the reality is um, I think sometimes if, if you're you know, speaking to an audience about a situation, one of the things that you need to do is drive home the message whether it's important or not. And this is not one that the United States people have thought was important. And yet, as you point out, it's one in which the U.S. is complicit with some of our allies and where we have an enormous amount of leverage over what the outcome is. Um, and we have some culpability even for enabling it at the outset and, um, and we're, we're coming up to a decision point on it and that's why we should care about it. In any event, I, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that you folks could spend the time to go through this, go through it in detail and bring your, uh, considerable experience to this, um, I want to thank you, Daphne. I want to thank you, Sharon. Of course, I uh, uh, love doing this with you, uh, Rosa, every week. But uh, I would also say that those of you who are out there and who want more on this, uh, we'll keep on it. Uh, go to deepstateradionetwork.com. We'll have some one-on-one conversations on this topic. We, uh, we will have uh, ongoing conversations about the broader context. Uh, We've got loads more coming and podcasts and in other kinds of, 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 of written content. So go there, become a member, help support DeepStateRadioNetwork.com. Uh, it helps support programming like this, um, which I think is important because these discussions aren't happening enough. Thanks, guys, very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.